This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hey there, it's Erica. Before we begin today's episode, I wanted to take a moment to address the coronavirus and how it's affecting HFMA's live education. As you may already know, our Revenue Cycle Conference and Financial Sustainability Summit are being rescheduled. And that's an important word, rescheduled, not canceled. We'll have more details soon and we'll share them when they're available. But in the meantime, I've invited Mary Mirabelli, our Senior Vice President of Content Strategy and Delivery, and Bill Casey, our Senior Vice President of Member Experience and Business Development, into the studio to talk about how we reached this tough decision and what you all can expect next. Mary and Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Erica. Bill and I have been working with a team within HFMA to really evaluate the situation and make some good decisions as we look at what's happening with this very rapidly changing environment and world that we live in. We've really been working and establishing a rapid response team here at HFMA to deal with all of the things that may change in the next few months as we experience our members getting travel bans, as well as our business partners as well. Yeah, and we want to be real sensitive to the needs of our members and their well-being. We also have to evaluate the news, which is changing constantly. So we are meeting on a daily basis to review that and make sure that we're making the right decisions. As Bill has suggested, our first priority really is the health and safety of our members, their families, and everyone who takes part really in the HFMA educational events. And we're evaluating all of our cancellation policies to make sure that we're providing the flexibility for you to make decisions and plan ahead. We've got great digital solutions that you can take advantage of on our site, but there is something essential to the live meeting opportunities. So we're being thoughtful about making sure that we keep that valuable content in the very near future. In fact, I would suggest even as this podcast is being released, check our website because you'll probably see information about the rescheduled dates. And for those of you who might be registered for either one of those events at this point, you'll be getting very specific information from us via email so that we keep you in touch. The other thing that Bill and I and the team have been talking about is how do we continue to provide some education at this point in the year? for our members that is tied to both the Revenue Cycle and the Financial Sustainability Summit. So for both of those events, we're planning a series of webinars that will lead up to the new dates once we get them and more to come on that. But we wanted to keep the momentum there by offering you some additional educational opportunities. And I, I can't help but add, in terms of the local economy, the entertaining that happens and the chance for you to go out and have dinner and those locations like New Orleans, when we get back out there, it's so important that we stop and, and visit those local establishments and make an investment back in those communities because they're taking a certain financial hit during this period. 
The other thing that I think is important for us to note is that the plans for the HFMA June 28th through July 1 annual conference in San Antonio are still on schedule. So that might change, but at this point, given all of the news that we're hearing as of this date, which is March 9th, we believe that our annual conference will continue as planned, and we so look forward to seeing you there. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. We've got some great stuff on the show today. Joe Polaris of R1RCM talks about how to achieve M&A goals. Rich Daly and I chat about his interview with Walmart's Lisa Woods in the March issue of HFM, and we share five ways to keep risk aversion from killing innovation. All that is coming up after Rich and Chad tell us what's happening in the news. This is Rich Daly, senior writer and editor for HFMA. And this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick peek at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. So today we're going to take uh, an update on the provider finances side of the coronavirus outbreak. Chad, you recently noted that despite recently enacted $8.3 billion federal funding package and moves by some states, hospitals should anticipate increased uncompensated care. Uh, where do you think they should expect that increase to come from? Yeah, no, Rich, it's a great question. And certainly, you know, we have seen one of the trade groups for health plans encourage their members to cover testing for coronavirus without cost sharing. And certainly we've seen some plans indicate that. And we've also seen the Health Plan Trade Association suggest that their members take steps to reduce the cost for providing care for individuals who have coronavirus. We have not seen sort of an across the board move either at the federal level to sort of eliminate cost sharing for hospitalizations or urgent care visits related to the disease. So I think that is certainly one place that you could see increased in compensated care from the insured, because certainly we've seen the prevalence of high deductible health plans. You know, for the uninsured, the federal government has suggested, but as of Tuesday at 2.30 Eastern, they have not actually said that they would release funding from the National Disaster Medical System, which would pay providers for uninsured patients at 110% of Medicare rates. But that's certainly something that we're looking at. And it's important to be aware that if they were to activate that, the, the National Disaster Medical System covers claims on a first-come, first-served basis, so as long as they have funding. So it's very similar to a lot of, a lot of state and local healthcare funds. I think the third place that you might anticipate increases in uncompensated care is if you think about it, a lot of individuals currently work in jobs where they don't have paid time off. So if you have an individual who has previous healthcare expenses, even though they may not contract the coronavirus or receive care as a result of it, they have an outstanding medical bill. They had to make a trip to the ED because of a, an accident. They may be working on a payment plan and now suddenly because they've had their hours cut or have been quarantined and told to stay at home because of exposure, if they don't have paid time off. They don't have a source of income. So there are many elements in the ongoing coronavirus spread and response that are out of the control of hospitals and health systems. But there are elements that they can prepare for today. So for instance, Chad, uh, under the um, increasing scrutiny, for instance, that those organizations have been for their account resolution practices, how could they prepare now 
to get in front of financial outcomes or financial consequences from this growing healthcare situation? I think really what I would encourage hospitals and health systems to do is first examine your financial assistance policies, make sure you think that they are set at the appropriate level based on kind of what the community's needs are. And also think about maybe if you are in an area that suddenly becomes a an epicenter of the outbreak, would you need to adjust those policies to take account for, you know, some of the the human suffering that has impacted the area? Plus, also given the fact that in a lot of instances, if people are out of work, they may not be able to meet their obligations when they normally would have in in, in regular times. I guess the other thing is, is once you're comfortable with the policy is set at the right level, I think you need to go back and just audit your processes to make sure that as you've got it down on paper patients and consumers can access financial assistance in in the ways that you envision. Because what you want to do is you want to make sure that the right people are able to access that help without barriers. Otherwise, certainly there's the human issue of, of sending someone a bill who should have otherwise qualified for financial assistance. And those types of stories, you know, I believe after the outbreak will end up getting elevated in the media. Yeah, that's helpful to know, you know, what they can control and how they should act now. Keep up with our latest legal and policy developments related to the new virus and all other matters at our daily news site at hfma.org forward slash news. How do you benchmark your revenue cycle performance? Many organizations measure success compared to past performance. Others leverage software to benchmark against other facilities that share the same technology. But that only paints part of the picture. What about comparing your performance to your peers? Peers that you define in custom peer groups. MapApp is the online benchmarking tool from HFMA that helps organizations compare their performance against data from more than 600 facilities. Interested in taking the next steps to identify your revenue cycle opportunities? Visit hfma.org forward slash MapApp. Hospital merger and acquisition activity has been trending up in recent years, and with the promised economies of scale, it seems an attractive option. But according to my guest today, achieving the desired benefits can be difficult. Joe Polaris, Senior Vice President of Solution Development for R1RCM, shares some best practices for creating strategies that help organizations reach their financial goals while providing a better patient experience. To be frank, in the broad market, we see a lot of indications that health systems are not really achieving the expected financial benefit of their combinations and of their growth. For instance, it's fairly well documented that while the combination of hospital systems and physician practices into a model where the physicians are employed, it's commonly believed that that will result in a reduction in administrative burden uh, on the physicians as the administrative work is able to be centralized because there's a scaled number of physicians whose work can be moved to or of a centralized shared services model. And the reality is when you talk to physicians, you find that a significant percentage of physicians report more administrative burden on their practices in the employed model than in their original independent model. Similarly, you see margins not materially improving in large physician practices and in health systems as a result of their combination. Uh, and so unfortunately, I think the, the reality is that with the exception of some really progressive organizations that have found ways 
to really holistically transform as part of their M&A and growth strategies, you find a lot of continued financial pressure on those organizations, even post-combination. Considering those challenges, how can health systems achieve their desired cost reductions and scalability and despite all the different technologies and processes that typically come to the table in an M&A situation? The two major things that I would suggest are imperative to a successful pursuit of scale leverage are experience, meaning having members of the leadership team or a partner at the table who have the experience of achieving significant scale leverage by meaningfully standardizing the way patients are greeted, the way patients are supported financially, the way patients are navigated through their care journey. These are hard practices to change. And short of experience driving a level of standardization in a newly formed combined entity, it can be very, very challenging to see that change through. And what you end up with is more of a holding company where you've not achieved the scale leverage, you've just simply added to your size. And then the second outside of experience would be a clear and detailed playbook for how the new operation will operate at scale. Uh, It's one thing to have the experience to drive change management, but it's also critical that we understand what's the best practice methodology, the best practice operating system, if you will, for leadership from the very top of the organization all the way down to the front lines to run this new entity in a standardized way, in a proactive way, in a way with visibility into how daily activities of the now much larger staff across the organization are going to connect with the outcomes that are sought in the combination, the scale leverage um, through the implementation of obviously best practices that are common across the organization. Consumerism seems to be a common theme everywhere in healthcare right now, but especially in revenue cycle. And of course, it is in healthcare organizations' best interest to provide an excellent patient experience. But what advice would you give health systems to ensure that their quest for financial improvement also does indeed result in a better patient experience? Well, that's a great question. And I I think it's very connected to this idea of health systems becoming larger and offering a more comprehensive set of products and services to the consumers who are seeking care. I I will say as as backdrop, consumer expectations are rapidly rising. uh, And we're not just, if we think about growing our organization to improve our competitive positioning, we've got to remember in healthcare, we are not just competing with the hospital down the street anymore in the eyes of the consumer. We're truly competing with the broader set of experiences that other industries provide to consumers in their daily lives. We're competing with Amazon. We're competing with Delta. We're competing with Seamless because consumers truly have come to expect the level of simplicity and the level of ease, transparency, and convenience to access products and services from those other industries. And so they now increasingly expect that in healthcare. So what I would say is, one, make sure that we've truly thought through the entire customer journey and we're not trying to solve a specific process in a, in a silo. As an example, not just trying to consolidate to one contact center for scheduling and intake, which in and of itself could create some value and, and in and of itself could seem like a good marketing strategy for patient acquisition. But if the rest of the journey is still cumbersome, confusing, opaque, and results in a dissatisfactory billing process, as an example, 
those patients really aren't likely to, to come back. And we know too often that the billing process does leave an overall negative impression with the patient. Uh, so that's one is really be comprehensive in mapping the consumer journey. And then the second is coming back to this M&A topic. It's very difficult across a large complex organization with multiple different EHRs and other technology systems in different hospitals and imaging centers and physician practices. It's very difficult to create a common experience and to create a consistent execution of sort of easy, intuitive self-service when patients' data is in all these different systems and different members of your organization are referencing different systems when they greet and care for those patients. And so it's really important to think about technical integration and think about are there ways to overlay a highly standardized common experience so that patients can go from appointment to appointment, have the same experience and not feel like they filled out the same uh, redundant paperwork five or six different times. If you're looking to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash job bank. In the March issue of HFM, Rich Daly interviewed Lisa Woods, Senior Director of U.S. Benefits for Walmart, about the company's plan to test curated physician networks starting in 2021. Today, Rich and I are talking about some of the highlights of their conversation and what effects the move could have on the industry. Rich, what are the broad strokes of Walmart's coming pilot and why should the healthcare industry be watching this? The Walmart pilot is starting small. It's only in three markets in the U.S. However, the potential growth of it is large because Walmart, their employee health plan, covers over 1 million enrollees. So um, they're basically explicitly testing this narrow network sort of approach where it's, it's different. And that's the other element of it. First of all, it's a large employer trying narrow networks with the potential to scale it nationwide. Secondly, providers selected are not being selected for the reasons that many health plans and others select people for narrow networks. It's not based on the price that they're charging. It's based on a quality analysis being done by a vendor of Walmart's and that analysis is basically going to pull information from a huge uh, health plan database and focus on eight physician specialties in these three markets. And for every physician within those eight specialties, it's going to rate them based on appropriateness of care, effectiveness of care, and also their overall cost performance. So those elements will be combined into a, a ranking, a score for, for these providers, these physicians. And then Walmart will select from them based on these scores and rankings and they create their, you know, effectively a narrow network in each of these markets based on, on that. that. Now, that approach basically is a huge departure from most of the industry because quality rankings are very controversial and how you particularly determine whether someone's high quality or not is very controversial. There's no national consensus on it, although there's lots of different groups, including the federal government that offer versions of this. So Walmart's just saying, forget it. We're just going to go with what our vendor here has decided is quality. And so if Walmart's successful in these markets with this approach, not only could be expanding it to all of its uh, every market where it covers workers, other large and not so large our employers may look at taking this kind of approach, which 
narrow networks are not widely used among employer-sponsored insurance. So that would be a huge, huge shift for the part of the health payer system that covers uh, anywhere from 155 to 175 million Americans. So big impact on providers. So what do you think is going to be the impact on, on the physicians in the markets where this is being tested? I talked to a Walmart, but I also talked to their vendor um, who's developed this whole system and who Walmart's deferring to on a lot of the mechanics of, of making this work on the ground. The vendor that they're using, it's called Embold Health, and they developed this whole uh, rating system, an- analysis system. At part of that rating and ranking system will involve sending all of this information that they come up with to each of the physicians in these three markets. So those individual physicians will be able to review this data if they want and contest whatever conclusion Embold comes to as far as their overall quality. Embold says they're very open to that. They want to have a conversation with these docs and uh, they want it to be two-way. They said, yeah, our system's not perfect. We're still building the perfect model. So we want to hear back from physicians who are like, you know what, you, you screwed up. These numbers aren't right. But also, the physician may not think the numbers are right. And Embold wants to talk to them too, even if Embold thinks the numbers are right. Because Embold is like, you know, this is an educational process. Docs aren't used to getting ongoing quality data. And so they look at it as a service. They're like, assuming our numbers are right, and we want to make sure of that with the docs, then this is a service for the docs. Because whether or not they're included in the Walmart markets, they can know on an ongoing basis how they're performing in their market. And they see that as adding real value to the, to the health system generally. Is that, is that a good thing or is that a little bit scary? Oh, I'm sure it will be scary. I mean, this is a very new thing. So physicians' experience with rating and ranking systems has not been positive. They're not generally big fans of national ranking systems from whether CMS or health plans or take your pick of the not-for-profit groups out there running various rating systems. So they've got issues with all of them and they've got concerns and they say there are shortcomings and this and that. And a lot of them are really valid concerns and it's a tough thing to quantify. I mean, something as subjective on some levels as quality is, is very difficult to quantify. And if you're going to be ranked compared to your colleagues on that, I mean, man, that really gets to the heart of the personality of a physician who is very generally very competitive person. And uh, health systems have used this kind of competitive instinct to internally provide quality data to drive improvement of their own physician. So it may be powerful or it may create a lot of backlash among physicians. Do you know anything about the process for contesting or what comes out of it if they're successful? You know, what's what's the point, I guess, of contesting if you're a physician? Well, and Bold says if they're wrong, you know, if anything in their data is inaccurate, because they're going off this third party, um, I think it's a, a database provided by the Blues plans, and it's got 150 million lives in it, supposedly. So they say if they're wrong, they want to know. They want to know if this data is not accurate. So theoretically, a physician could change their own ranking or rating within the system if the data is wrong, and they show that to Embold, you know, when they contact them. But it's not a public process, so there's no obligation, I guess, no appeals process or what have you built into the system as far as I'm aware. And so it's it's sort of a conversational thing. And, you know, assuming no one ever makes this these numbers public, this wouldn't have a public impact on the doctors. It's not like the public would know, oh, you're ranked dead last in your specialty in this market. It would just wouldn't be known outside of Embolden and Walmart and not their employees. Walmart is not uh, so far as I'm aware, providing a number ranking to their employees. They're just saying, 
these physicians and these specialties all meet our quality threshold. So they're all in network for you. So what's the effect on, on hospitals for all this? So immediately, there's little effect. The only um, hospital data that will be used is the extent to which any of these physicians provide care in a hospital setting. So their quality care results in those settings will be included as part of their individual rankings. Uh, And Bolt does not, or Walmart, or for any other employer, track hospital quality and didn't say they had any plans to do so. However, CMS obviously moved from physicians to hospitals looking at quality data, and many others also try to track and rate hospitals. So it's an area that hospitals should watch um, because this kind of thing, if it gets legs in these markets and in Walmart broadly, logically it would expand to every type of provider. Uh, And hospitals are obviously the the biggest cost center uh, among providers. So they would be wise to keep an eye on it. Well, definitely sounds like this is something to keep an eye on. So thanks, Rich, for your insights on this. Definitely. Glad to talk. Wouldn't it be great to provide your staff with unlimited access to HFMA's library of online education? How about HFMA's accredited certification programs, market-leading white papers, in-depth research reports, and more? Introducing Enterprise Solutions, a group membership program designed to provide your organization's employees with cost-effective tools and resources that increase staff engagement and optimize organizational results. Get your organization engaged with Enterprise. For more information and to watch an introductory video, visit hfma.org forward slash enterprise. The sports world is full of quotes about the importance of taking chances. Hockey great Wayne Gretzky famously said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And Basketball Hall of Famer Michael Jordan once noted that he'd missed 26 shots that would have won his team the game. Athletes can't let fear of failure keep them from taking chances, something the healthcare industry can learn from when thinking of innovation. For today's Fast Five, here are five ways healthcare leaders can innovate despite the fear of failure. Experiment with the idea. Where possible, try out an idea in a small part of the organization or low-impact line of business so you can get a proof of concept before pursuing an idea that may not work out. Set objectives to gain from your innovation. Don't just make a change for the sake of it. Know your goals and the benefits of reaching those goals. Set reasonable milestones. Set some realistic timelines for things to progress in your innovation. But if you consistently miss those time targets, that could be a sign of trouble. Find the WIIFM. Show some what's in it for me outcomes to people so you garner support to help your innovation mature successfully or help you if things don't work out. Be willing to stop when it makes sense to do so. The sunk cost fallacy is a major contributor to small miscalculations growing into major failures. If things are not working out with your idea, don't stubbornly keep pushing forward. This Fast Five came from the Healthcare Innovation column by Jeff Helton in the March issue of HFM Magazine. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. If you'd like to get in touch with me or anyone else on the team, you can contact us at podcast at hfma.org.
Be nice to Linda.